0: Earn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org.
1: You know, in this case, there is a nation invading another nation. And uh, I think it's incumbent on all of us with, um, with the means to do everything we possibly can um, to support the victim in this case and you know, and in any other case as well.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. As the invasion of Ukraine unfolds, we want to provide timely insights from the experts. So we've launched a series of special unedited episodes separate from our normal content. My guest today, Ahmed Khan, is an activist, philanthropist, and humanitarian who worked with the International Rescue Committee after the Rwandan genocide. He's evacuated refugees from Afghanistan and helped them resettle safely, and he's now focused on Ukraine, helping to lead evacuation efforts there and deliver medical supplies. Ahmed, welcome to Burn the Boats. Hey, Ken. How are you? Thanks for having me on. You bet. You have seen and done a lot in your years on the front lines of humanitarian crises around the world how does ukraine compare
1: um ukraine is just awful i mean I, there are very few words to describe it and i uh I, I'm, I'm failing to do so um the 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 for ferocity of 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 the destruction is, is something that i i haven't seen before um and the you know the speed of everything that's happening. So you know we're literally not even three months in, and um, let's say six million people are outside the country already, and another seven to eight million people are displaced internally. That's just uh, these numbers are just you know almost unbelievable.
0: You just used that phrase, the ferocity of of the destruction, and you're a person who's been to Aleppo. I mean, you've seen Putin's handiwork. Elsewhere, I've been talking to military strategists and, and tacticians about the uh, the strategic use of terror in in Ukraine. But you have observed this pattern close up. How has this become a? I, I guess I'm asking the historical question. I mean, how has this become part of the doctrine? of one of the most powerful militaries on earth to target the most defenseless, the most vulnerable to achieve, achieve their, their political ends.
1: I don't know that it's anything new um, in the study of sort of uh, Russian warfare. Um, you know, sort of, they, they did very similar things in Grozny um, in Chechnya. Um, previously, they had done similar things in Georgia. They had done similar things in uh, Crimea um, this time and previously, uh, and of course, uh, World War Two, um, and then back to the Russian empire. So obviously different technology and different, uh, abilities, um, force capabilities. Um, but it's, it's, I, I don't know that it's, it's anything new and you did mention Aleppo and, you know, I, I, I have to pull up old conversations I've had or any sort of podcasts I did, but I think it was a lot of deja vu um, for me because uh, I feel like I've said sort of this stuff before, but I, I, I think uh, if anything could be worse than Aleppo that this might be, because we we're talking about Aleppo and now it's, you know, there's, there's Bryansk, there's Bucha, there's Erpin there's Mariupol, which there are no words for um, and on and on and on, uh, you know, sort of, Hitting food storage, hitting fuel storage, hitting uh, railroad tracks, hitting train stations, hitting um, cargo rails, um, hospitals, cemeteries, schools, um, kindergartens, playgrounds. It's really, uh, it's just really just awful.
0: You at one point tried to put into into words your impressions your experience of seeing Mariupol or talking to folks who had had fled it and I'm thinking about one conversation in particular you related uh, with with an elderly woman named Olga. can you share with us some of what real Ukrainians are experiencing at the the hands of the Russian invaders in places like Mariupol?
1: Uh, it's kind of tough because when they, when, the, when they start to tell you your stories, you just, you, you kind of break down, even though you've sort of seen it and heard it before, but there's, it just never, it, it never becomes normal. Um, so essentially, uh, it's just, their lives are just completely ruined. Um, for example, Mariupol, uh, you raised, uh, the evacuations went to, uh, the first town that they would come into um, is a town called, uh, a city called Zaporizhia, um, just a couple hours north, but it's actually not a two or three hour journey. It's more like a two or three day journey um, because they run into 20 to 30 Russian checkpoints along the way. They also come under fire along the way. So if you look at the parking lot of uh, the first uh, welcome center, In Zaporizhia, you'll find a bunch of private cars with bullet holes um, in every window and along the back, the bumper. And you ask the person who was driving, you know, how did you maintain your calm? And and she most likely, uh, most often would say, uh, you know, I had no other choice. I had three or four other people in my car that I was responsible for evacuating and just had to keep going forward. And, you know, so there's no I, I, you don't really know how to internalize what they're going through and you don't even know if they'll ever recover. But what you are impressed by is their, their strength. Uh, so I think the stories have been told about um, you know, gender based violence, um, actions against civilians from from snipers or close range. Uh, these are all things that all and dead bodies uh, strewn across the streets. These are all things that all the citizens of um, of Mariupol and other cities like Mariupol, the villages around uh, Mariupol as well, have uh, experienced um, firsthand and witnessed um, the local Red Cross chapters are inundated with people uh, that they've rescued from villages and towns that have come under fire. And being sort of witness to those stories, it's it's much the same Um Three days ago, I was in a Red Cross chapter in Mari in um, Mikolayev, and they had just brought in a uh, woman and her child. The woman's two brothers were 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 killed by shrapnel um, planting their field. And you just sort of, uh, while they were telling the story, I was kind of just picturing, you know, two guys going out doing their spring planting, um, as they do in rural Ukraine, and uh, and their life just ending just like that, and. But the mother had to, the sister of the two brothers and had to keep it together to get her, her child out. And it was just,
0: uh, you know, it's, these are the kind of things that are just sort of overwhelming. You stand apart from a lot of humanitarians and, and certainly a lot of humanitarian organizations in that you pick sides and you have... Uh, not been ambivalent at all about who the aggressor here is and, and who the victim is. Does that complicate your work? Does that motivate it? Um, why do you bring such a clarity of thought to, to something like this?
1: Well, I think, uh, we as individuals, it's our responsibility to do so. So, um, you know, I represent me, you know, maybe my family and sort of my, my private foundation and perhaps my friends who join me on these, um, on, on these missions. Um, so, you know, it's very clear to me, uh, in these situations that it's, they're generally, um, battles of, you no, know, not to sound simplistic or biblical but there are literally battles between good and evil and um it's it's very easy for me to uh, to make that distinction um you know in this case there is a nation invading another nation and uh i think it's incumbent on all of us with um, with the means to do everything we possibly can
0: um to support the victim in this case and you know and in any other case as well you say everything we possibly can the other thing that distinguishes you is um you go that extra mile and have I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much we can talk about this but uh, you don't draw the line at at non-lethal aid you have also done some things to empower the the ukrainians to defend themselves um how much can you share with us about your efforts there
1: uh well essentially as a humanitarian it's very clear um your first goal is to stop war, to prevent war um, so when you fail with that, um, you want to stop the war, and you want to stop the war as quickly as possible. So you you come to a conclusion: uh, How do you stop the war? And in this case, I think um, I I was of the uh, opinion that um, the Russians would uh, would not, you know, the, the Russian Government response to uh, power um, and uh, would not negotiate um, unless they were, you know, sort of they felt that there was something pushing back at them. So I've advocated um, um, for Ukraine to be armed um, as much as it possibly can be from the beginning for that purpose. For the, how do you stop the war? Because that's that that should be everyone's. Uh, Sort of immediate goal. Um, Number one, prevent the war. If you don't, if you fail, then you must stop the war. And then, what does it take to stop the war? Um, So, I uh, I I had worked with the Ukrainian military actually doing evacuations in Afghanistan in August. So I have a lot of good friends um, in the Ukrainian military um, since then, and uh, you know keep close touch and ask them, you know, what do you need and What can I help with? And is there anything, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing because if you actually, and I have a lot of sort of close contacts in the Ukrainian government, so there are people from all sorts of uh, backgrounds who are sort of just uh, 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 evangelizing for um, Ukraine to have the ability to defend itself. Um, So I think that's that's how I got into that.
0: What do you say to those who... Just want to end the war at all costs, and think that Ukraine capitulating or conceding its own territory, uh, if that expedites the end of the conflict, um, they should they should do that. What do you say to to those who who don't want Ukraine to fight, thinking that will uh, that will end the suffering?
1: Yeah, I think that's just, uh, they don't know Ukrainians, you know? So if I, if I had a bunch of Ukrainians telling me that's what they wanted, then I would support them in that. Um, but you, I've been to all corners of Ukraine, um, since 2005, almost every year. And, uh, I've spent the large majority of this current war inside Ukraine, working with Ukrainians, uh, meeting Ukrainians that I've never known before. And, uh, I've yet to meet one that thinks they should, uh, Capitulate. Um, so, you know, I think that's where my interest in supporting them comes from, and I think uh, so. That's you know, sort of a misunderstanding of who Ukrainians are, and then number two, the reality is they would be wiped off the face of the earth if uh, if they did do that. Um, the Russians came um to ukraine on the 24th with the intention of uh, deposing and probably murdering the president uh, the elected president of the country and they had a list of a few hundred other people uh, mayor vitaly klitschko of kiev um, his brother vladimir klitschko is a good friend of mine um, former heavyweight champion they were all on sort of assassination lists um so there was. There's no sort of goodwill <laughs> on the part of the attacker. Um, there's a kind of internet meme in, in Ukraine that says, uh, you know, if uh, if Ukraine uh, ceases to fight, it'll cease to exist, and that's the uh, that's the belief of the Ukrainian people. And I think it's it's more than a theory. It's been proven out. So in 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 the towns like uh, Kherson that have been taken over by the Russians, they've removed signs street signs, let's say, that were in Ukrainian or English even. There are plenty of English signs and, and replace them with Russian signs. And, uh, you know, essentially what you're saying is that uh, most likely the, the country would 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 just not exist. Um, you know, and then what? You know, sort of, is it, is it, does that mean they're finished? Would they,
0: I, I don't think so. You've had a chance to meet with President Zelensky, is that right? Yeah, that's right. What was your since leaving that meeting of the of his ability to marshal that willingness to to fight he sees it as an as an existential battle for the next thousand years of 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 ukrainian history right
1: yeah i um i i haven't seen him since august um so that's that's when I first uh, got in touch with them when I was looking for help with the evacuation of Afghans and the Ukrainians step forward. Um, but he was very clear back then, and I've been trying to sort of help them uh, get their message out that they were worried about a Russian invasion. You know, back then, um, and I he he clearly had his finger on the pulse of of the Ukrainian people, and he had his finger on the pulse of what was happening. So I had no doubt that. When the time came, and I, I did believe that it would come, unfortunately, despite our best efforts to try and get world support behind um, preventing this from happening, um, that he would uh, he would rise to the occasion. Um, you know, I'm in daily contact almost with. Um, his chief of staff and national security advisor, Andre Yermak. And they just have always been very clear. Um, we need to, we need the world's help to make sure they understand that we are under this threat. We are worried it's going to happen. Well, you know, they tried their best. It didn't, it, it, it didn't succeed. The Russians did invade and they have um, held steadfast uh, since then. And uh, I was, uh, I, I, I can't say I was surprised by any of it because from the moment I met them, I, I just felt that these are strong, strong leaders who represent their people and understand their people and, uh, and and will be able to sort of marshal and marshal the support within the country and around
0: the world. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. You know, a lot can happen in 7 minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7 Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling. In all, in approximately seven minutes. Why do you think the political and military leadership in the West got that same analysis so wrong in thinking that the Ukrainians would would buckle? That uh, they had it at most a few weeks. I mean, if if you saw the spirit of the Ukrainians from those meetings with Zelensky and his senior staff and, and from your time in Ukraine, why didn't our uh, political military establishment, our state department see the same thing and, um, and do what it could earlier to aid in their defense? Yeah,
1: I don't think they teach this stuff at Yale is my short answer, but was uh, <laughs> a Big Ten guy, I uh, <laughs> uh, generally we, uh, we, we know we can figure out what's going on on the ground, right? Like I think a lot of policymakers just don't really have much uh, real world experience and uh, clearly our human intelligence uh, operations uh, aren't what they used to be. Um, it's probably a reliance on technology and mathematics and other stuff. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was clear to me uh, they weren't going anywhere and they wouldn't be defeated. I mean, the reality is, uh, the Ukrainian army was probably pretty weak in 2015. You know, when Yanukovych was deposed, uh, obviously they, were, they had sort of had a a Russian uh, plant as the president, right? And since then, there's been a lot of work done. It's actually been done with the great assistance of the United States and the Department of Defense. Uh, you know, I have I've, I, would guess I know over two or 250 Ukrainian officers, soldiers, medics that have been trained by the U.S. and in the U.S., you know, so that's that's happened since 2015. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure why we didn't know that the people we trained were really good because they should. Um, and again, I, I mentioned this Afghanistan operation, but... Um, uh, I, I went into Kabul with uh, Ukrainian special forces and they, and this is at the time, this is the day after the airport bombing. Um, so U.S. military was inside the gates of the uh, airport and, and they walked right into Kabul to, uh, to do evacuations, fearless, stared down the Taliban, um, loaded up the passengers, put them on the plane, and we flew to Islamabad and then we flew back to Kiev. And, you know, that was, I was with uh, 50 to 75, um, you know, special operations um, soldiers. And after you've seen that kind of bravery and that sort of, um, sort of, effort in in the face of really really tough and dangerous conditions uh i just i literally never had any doubts about that and i think that was august 28th or 29th since then i just like
0: you know uh, these are not people to be messed with how does that compare to the performance of the the russian military in ukraine i, I assume you haven't come into direct contact with Russian forces, but I imagine you have you have seen their evidence of their lack of professionalism. You've certainly seen their their handiwork, and it's kind of a truism in war that the insecure army is the one that resorts to terror tactics. Um, how do you compare the the capabilities and professionalism of the Ukrainians? To the Russians that they're up against.
1: Well, it's a bit different because obviously I worked closely with the Ukrainians and I know them. Um, I have not met any Russians, but I have met uh, their handiwork, as you said. So I was in Bucha, um, which is in suburb of uh, Kiev, two days after liberation. Um, so I was at the mass graves, um, which uh, are behind a uh, a church in Bucha and um I visited homes of uh people who were actually uh who stayed in Bucha during the uh period. And so what I witnessed um was uh an clearly undisciplined army. Um you know sort of if you walked into somebody's house what you saw was uh Broken alcohol bottles everywhere, you know, sort of vodka, beer, whatever. Well, you know, they would take whatever the person had in their house. They drank everything and then smashed the bottles. Um, you know, I saw really crazy stuff. Uh, I saw a dog with his paws removed, sort of nailed up against a uh, against a fence. Um, you know, these are not things that a disciplined army does. And, you know, one of the guys whose houses they destroyed said uh you know it looks to me like they're in a war against our houses um you know aside that's aside from the most horrific things which are the uh, war against uh, women and children uh the sexual violence um, rapes gang rapes um, murders of uh, of women and children so from that perspective you know they're they're you know like something more similar to ISIS than a than a state military. And then the other thing uh, you see regularly are missile strikes. I see them all the time and they're apartment buildings, like I said. and Sometimes they're just uh, unknown targets. For example, uh, three days ago, just outside of Odessa, um, there was a missile strike on a field and you're trying to figure out what were they attacking? And um, someone came up with you know what, there was an air base here in the 80s during the Soviet Union. So someone said, look, uh, they may be using maps from the Soviet Union to uh, choose their targets. You know, so who knows, right? Like, uh, I have no insight on uh, <laughs> from their side, but we have heard stories that actually, you um, you know, sort of officers have complained. Russian officers are complaining that they're getting faulty intelligence to uh, for their targeting, but then they've been um, silenced by their superiors. I mean, this this is just like sort of the scuttlebutt type stuff uh, among Ukrainian troops, but uh, you know, from people that have been captured, etc. So, uh, so you just don't know. Is it incompetence? Is it lack of discipline? Is it what? Like, but you know. Um, none of it sort of disguises the horror that is is you know all Wars but this one
0: um, perhaps another level do you think the the full weight of this horror and of the the incompetence and lack of discipline that is contributing to it will eventually be made known to the to the Russian public it goes without saying that superficially right now the Russian public supports the war. Can that last? It's tough
1: because they've been running this um, really intense propaganda, you know, operation for years and years and years. So at this point, you know, uh, there are thousands of sort of social media influencers. And if you watch any of the uh, major Russian uh, media networks, essentially it's, uh, we went to Ukraine to denazify Ukrainians. And reclaim our land that it's just an alternate universe of information. And uh and so it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's gonna be a lot of work by someone or some ones um to undo uh to do all that. I mean the, the as you know, the um one of the great independent uh polling institutions in Russia has the number somewhere around between 80 and 85% of support for the war. Um whatever that means, but you know it's so you're trying to figure out if that's uh, nationalism or uh, the propaganda at work, but whatever it is, it's 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 scary.
0: When it comes to to the aftermath, um, all wars end, of course, but I think accountability is going to be especially important in this one. Do you hold any any hope that we will have the receipts? as it were, for the war crimes being committed. Uh, will we be able to make pariahs internationally of those who, who ordered them? Uh, how thorough is the, the preservation of, of this record of, uh, of indiscriminate slaughter and the targeting of civilians? Uh, do, you, do you think there's enough there? It's a it's
1: a major priority of uh, the Zelensky administration, actually. Great. So they have some excellent people working on it. Um, the local prosecutors general in each uh, vicinity are on it. There are investigators that are on it They do interviews uh, daily. Uh, I think you probably saw that they've already begun to bring charge it, bring up um, Russian soldiers on charges. So it'll be incumbent on all of us, uh, you know, you, uh, all of us, um, to keep this going until there is accountability because if there isn't, then, you know, this just goes on and on. And, you know, from the Russian side, I, I do know some, some Russians and they say, well, I was told recently that, um, you know, an, a, an, a, an event that had an impact on Putin was the U S invasion of Iraq um, for him personally thinking like, you know, they just come and get me. And then, you know, there worst, really no accountability on that right and so that's always a russian propaganda answer that what they do is this thing called what about is and what about but the reality is um if we are representing a world rules-based order then we have to follow that rule-based order Or else it makes it easier for others to uh, to violate it so you know i'd like i do we'd like to think and it's it's actually one of my areas of uh focus is the investigations um to hold those um, war criminals accountable. Um, and I think it'll be incumbent on the uh, world community to do the same. Um, I think the Ukrainians will be uh, on it you know, indefinitely. Um, and then it's the rest of the world, you're, you're just not sure how it comes out because uh, of course there's a reliance on Russian oil and gas and other sort of uh, commercial interests on the part of the Europeans. So, uh, you know, it's uh, hopefully they they can't buy their way out of that.
0: President Zelensky recently released a video in which he summarized the conflict as a as a war of worldviews. And I cannot think of a better example of that than than what you just described, Where Ukrainian prosecutors are bringing up Russian soldiers on war crimes charges using the international legal mechanisms available at the same time that their oppressor, the Russian invader, is flouting every international norm, every international legal standard, and and raising villages across Ukraine. What an unbelievable contrast. Yeah,
1: um, you know, and that's Ukraine is a is a special country, and Ukrainians are a special people, and that's uh, that's been my my uh, attraction to the country since I, I first went there uh, for f- sort of freedom-loving people who want to just uh, live their lives, you know, peacefully. Um, you know, essentially all the things that we hold dear as Americans. Um, I really, I, I think that they're, you know the highest level of, uh, uh, of individuals, you know, personal liberty. Uh, these are things that they, they obviously are fighting to the death and risking their lives for. Um, and I, I, I think that's why the Biden administration has been so strong and the American public has been behind them because they can sort of feel that from a distance, but, you know, I can tell you from my personal experience, it's really, uh, you really, uh, you really feel an affinity, uh, for them and many in ways that are, you know, beyond the rest of the Europeans, uh, in terms of their, their beliefs, uh, and what they're willing to do for those beliefs. Um, and it sort of mirrors, you know, American revolutionaries, or, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's really, really just really impressive, um, You know they they draw the contrast between them and the Russians, but there even may be a contrast between them and the rest of Europe. I mean, really, the Europe has the values, and you know, European Union mandate has these values, but it's really Ukrainians that are, are fighting for those values and risking their lives and often giving up their lives for those values.
0: By implication, they are fighting for those values, not just in in Ukraine, but but around the world. I mean, there are freedom freedom loving people everywhere who are looking at what is happening in ukraine and wondering what's next from the baltics to to taiwan what do you think the stakes are for the rest of the world and how this conflict ends
1: yeah i think i think that you know the sort of contrast between um sort of a liberal society, um, democracy, representative republic, and um, authoritarianism is very clear. Um, and there may be an alliance of authoritarians uh, growing pretty pretty rapidly. Um, so the defeat of uh, perhaps the world's most powerful authoritarian or second most, or however you want to rank them, um, you know, would be great for freedom-loving people, I think. But it's, uh, it looks like it's going to be with us um, for ages because uh, because the way sort of authoritarianism has, has taken hold uh, around the world.
0: You recently wrote, and we'll we'll wrap with this, Ukraine can defeat Putin, but only with our help. Otherwise, he will destroy the entire country city by city. What else can we do? What should... Americans be doing?
1: Well, I think, uh, private philanthropists and activists just need to advocate, um, and keep the government, uh, pushing to be sort of filling the needs that Ukraine identifies. Um, and we just all need to be there for them. Sort of philanthropists can be actually filling up, filling in holes, um, that the governments can't do. Um, you know, they can do, they can fund, uh, for example, there are a lot of ex-U.S. military in country doing trainings. Um, uh, they can fund some of those organizations uh, that are doing great work. There are other sort of American and European NGOs that are doing um, combat medic uh, training and combat medic work, actually, which is uh, which is great. You know, sort of going into difficult places. Um, but I think it's just constantly advocating and, and remembering what, what what's at stake here. Um, I think you know all of us are vested in this, uh, in, in this war. And, um, we just have to, uh, we just have to keep the, keep the pressure on. I think the the administration had this sort of, um, incremental, um, look at this, but I think, I think they're in the right place now, but, uh, that just, that just has to continue in the energy, um, on the part of the people, uh, American people and philanthropists and advocates and activists should should also continue
0: well thanks so much Ahmed for joining us um you're headed back soon right
1: yeah I am um working on uh there are two Ukrainian American doctors that someone introduced me to that have been getting donated medicine from um, hospitals around the United States and they needed help with a uh with a uh, with a cargo plane. So I said, yeah, I I'm, I'm good at these charters now that I did them in Afghanistan. So I'll I'll hop out with that. So we're working on that and hopefully uh we'll be headed back uh with that plane full of uh full of uh, much needed medicine um, early uh late next week or early the week after.
0: Well, good luck. Please um keep us posted and and we'll check in with you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Ken. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, Boat Vets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Ruhl-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeLoya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.